If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Galatians chapter 4, and we will be in the singular verse of verse 19 from Galatians chapter 4, taking a short little detour through a couple different places, and we will get back into the book of Mark momentarily. But if you would, turn over to Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 19. I realize a a slightly peculiar passage for us to talk about, uh, not on a day like Mother's Day, but uh, nevertheless, here we are. Galatians 4.19 would say, my little children... For whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Let me say it again. My little children, as Paul writes, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Let me pray for us, then we'll get started. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. We thank you for how each element of where we've been this morning has led us to this moment to open your word. So Lord, I pray that we don't just hear information about it, that we don't just retain knowledge about your word, but your word would reach every part of our heart, soul, mind, uh, the way that we talk, the way that we walk, where we go, how we converse, how we love, how we care. So Lord, I pray today your word would affect us in a real way, that we would leave the doors of this church, that we would turn off the television in a, a way that has prepared us for whatever would come our way. We always let your word be a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. First thing that you see on your outline, if you have that, you can pull that out, is Paul's heart hurt for the Galatians. Paul's heart was hurting for the Galatian and their church. Now, if we go back, we're not looking at this as we've done in the book of Mark, to look week after week after week after week, verse after verse. So let's go back and see how we got to the point that Paul would be writing about the Galatian church with a heart that would say he is in the anguish of childbirth. I mean, you don't just get there, right? How do you, how do you write these words? And so if you look back for a moment, Galatians 4, 13 would say that Paul had a bodily ailment that led him to preach to the Galatian church. It's interesting, last week we looked at Paul's thorn in his flesh. His grace was sufficient for Paul. This thorn in the flesh or this bodily ailment would lead him to preach to the Galatian church. Again, this would be a, it's not the, the final answer to what the thorn in the flesh was, but it would be a proponent would say, it looks like it's a bodily ailment. They would lead him on a detour that would send him to the Galatian church where he would pour his life into them. But let's look for a moment at how Paul feels about where the Galatian church is right now. Galatians 1.6, Paul writes, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So Paul, right off the bat in Galatians 1, 6 says, I am astonished, right? Not astonished at how good you're doing. I'm astonished at how quickly you have deserted the very gospel that had changed your lives. He would continue in Galatians 3, 1, O foolish Galatians, right? Over two so far, Galatians. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who continues to pull you away from the gospel truth? Who continues, even though you're pressing in, even though you knew it, who continues to take you away from the gospel that changes you? And then you get to Galatians 4, 9. But now that you have heard, or now that you have come back to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn your back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? 
Again, in these three passages, Paul is saying, how could you, Galatians, how could you go back to the very thing that held you in captivity? How could you go back to the gospel that's not really a gospel at all that has kept you in captivity? It reminds me, as we looked at the Exodus and the Israelites, as they leave captivity, what do they say as they're out wandering in the desert? Man, Moses, can we just go back to the to captivity? At least we had raisin cakes back there. At least I know we're in captivity, but at least we had some meat and some fish and some raisin cakes. Can we just go back into captivity, not knowing what was right in front of them? And so Paul, again, to the Galatian church, you see these three passages woven throughout the book of Galatians where Paul is like, come on, come on, guys, get it together. Why are you so, so leaving that which has been so important to you? How are you missing the very core fabric of what has made you as strong as you are as the Galatian church? And so you see all these things would lead him in verses 19 of Galatians 4 to say, my little children, after all this, I'm astonished, who's bewitched you, foolish Galatians, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth. I mean, this is no small metaphor, right? This is no small, hey, thorn in the side. This is just a small little deal, or I feel bad for you, or I'm hurting. Paul uses possibly the strongest of personal ailments that we could possibly imagine, so I hear, is childbirth. I mean, I've been in the operating, not operating, the, the delivery room three times. I saw it, didn't experience it, that this is a painful analogy. All the wives said, Okay, I guess it wasn't that bad. So you walk through it. It's tough. It's difficult. All the way back to Genesis when the curse happens and God gives to Eve the curse of a painful, labored childbirth. This is the analogy that Paul gives in the anguish in his heart for the Galatian church. A painful one, a heavy one, a long-suffering, nine-month labor, anguish in his heart. So as we go into this, as we see this verse, we need to understand first the weight of Paul's heaviness for the Galatian church. But we go to number two to understand what Paul's anguish is about. This is important. We don't need to miss this. We don't need to get this convoluted into anything else. This is gravely important, but it's also plainly obvious. Paul's goal was gospel formation. Nothing else. His goal was for the gospel to be formed into the hearts of the Galatians. So feel his heaviness when he says, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth, what? Until Christ is formed in you. That's his whole goal. That's his whole purpose. And friends, we're living in a day and age, in a culture and a time in which gospel formation is equivalent and on par with everything else. And let me, let me just illustrate for a moment as a, as a dad as a father of three kids, and you can extrapolate this out and however it would work for your heart, but let me just give you how this works in my life. My greatest desire is for my three kids, Micah, Helen Ann, and Nora, to know Jesus. And I'll be all, that's my greatest desire, that they would know Jesus in a real way, that they would have a relationship with the Lord, and they would grow in wisdom and stature in favor with God and man. That is my number one top priority of my life, is my kids to know Jesus. But there are times... When me as a dad want a lot of other things for my kids. All good things, right? You might have just finished playing t-ball. I wanted as a dad, standing on the chain link fence, watching him play, I wanted him to hit the ball well. 
I wanted him not to pick daisies in the outfield. I didn't want him to be one of those kids. I wanted him to listen to his coach. I wanted him to be respectful of his coach. I wanted him to be liked by his other teammates and do the right things, but I wanted him to fit in amongst his teammates. At the end of the game, I wanted him to, to be a, a cheerful encourager of his team. I wanted him to run to the right to go to first base and not to go to the left and go to third base when he hits the ball. I wanted all these things for my son, which is none of them wrong things. When he goes to school, I want him to say, yes, sir, no, sir, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. I want him to be nice and respectful to his teachers. I want him to know arithmetic and writing. I want him to fit in amongst his peers and just be a, uh, somebody who's not picked on. I want him to, don't want him to be a bully, and I don't want him to be bullied. I want him to grow up and know how to read and write and study and think for his own. I want him to grow up and play sports and enjoy creative arts, whatever it is. The Lord has put his passion in his heart and in my kids' lives. But at the end of the day, I want my kids to know Jesus far more than any of that. And there are days and there are moments, and hear me say, I'm praying that my heart would, would expand in this area. There are days and moments when our culture would elevate all of this other good stuff, good stuff, pursuit of sports and school and creative things, pursuit of money and job and all this stuff, that it would be on the same level as the gospel being formed of the hearts of our kids and grandkids and the hearts of the lost and people around us. There is a time that we are living in which gospel formation and all these other pursuits are on the same playing field. And I can feel it in my own heart. These times in which I say, I want my son to do this. I want my daughter to do this. I want them to have this. And so I'll do everything for them to have these things. I'll push so hard for them to have these things. But at the end of the day, is my heart broken and anguished to say, I want my kids to know Jesus above everything else. And so I rearrange my schedule, my time, my efforts, my energies. I, I, I redirect everything so that my kids know Jesus. So they see Jesus in my life. They see Jesus in the way I talk and handle everything about me. Paul's goal, yes, he loved the Galatians. He loved them. He wanted them to be healthy and happy and all these things, all these right things. But you see Paul say, my anguish, again, is that Christ is formed in you. That is his chief aim, his chief desire, his chief goal is that Christ would be formed in the hearts of the Galatian church who he has labored beside. I can vividly recall sitting on the second pew of the church that I grew up in. Right here, second pew, and first pew was reserved for the deacons, and the second pew was the Bethes. And if you sat in that pew, my grandmother would come and tell you, we're so glad you're here, but you are sitting in our pew. Right? She was one of those, loved my grandmother. She was an amazing woman, loved the Lord, but she would tell you if she was sitting in the Bethay pew, right? Some of you, if we sat in your pew, you would do the same, so don't, don't cast dispersions, all right? We don't need to do that. It's not a good thing, not a positive thing. Hear me say, not a positive thing, but we sat and grew up in the second pew of our church and. I can vividly remember on a Sunday morning as a young kid, at the end of a service, my grandmother, uh, Mamaw, was weeping these big tears in her eyes. And I don't know that to that point, as a, as a young little boy, I'd ever seen my grandmother cry before. And so, you know, I wondered what was going on. You know, did, did something happen? Did somebody hurt her? Did she get hurt during the middle of the service? What was going on? And so walked up at the end of the service and just said, Mamaw, are you, are you okay? What, what's going on? And I, as a boy, can still remember vividly and with clarity at the end of that service, that green carpet and all the different things going on in that sanctuary, saw my grandmother turn to me and just say, Mark, I am praying from the bottom of my heart 
that you know Jesus. I just want you, I want you to know Jesus. And that's all she said. But in that moment, I, I saw in her that, that almost pains of just my, my grandsons, my, they don't know the Lord yet, and I'm praying with everything that I am that they would know Jesus. And my grandmother was at every basketball, football, tennis match that I ever did. But I saw that day that what was most important to her above any accomplishments that I could ever do was the day on August 5th when I came forward at the end of a service and gave my life to Jesus. There were tears in her eyes of joy knowing that her grandson had trusted in Jesus. So friends, as you come to this and you see Paul's anguish, it was not over anything else in culture. It was not over anything else other than the fact that Christ would be formed in the hearts of the Galatian church. And we as an American church, we as a Montgomery church, we as a First Baptist church can come to this. And we can look at so many different things. We can look at so many different problems and issues and we could say, oh, if they would just, or if we would just. But friends, we need this heart. I need this heart as a dad, as a pastor, as just a, a person called by God to live in this world. I, I desperately want this heart that would, would call me out of my normalcy, will call me out of the normal patterns of this culture and say, I desperately want Christ to be formed in hearts of people who he has not yet formed in. This is why we exist as a church, is that we recognize Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So we labor day in and day out that Christ would be formed in hearts of those who do not know him yet. What we sing about. We sing about the fact that Christ has been formed in us and that we know him. And so we sing about the goodness of who he is and what he's done for us. We sing about the fact that we have received the free gift of God that is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So as we sit here, you may say, well, Mark, how do I have this heart? How do we grow in this heart? I don't have it yet, I'm struggling with it yet, or I put all these things on the same level, so how do we have this same heart? Give you just four different areas of, of how. First, we pray for a deeper love. This morning, if you would struggle and say, I, I don't have this depth of heart, I struggle with this depth of hearty love, of just deep compassion, or this heart set of, of loving people that I want to see Christ formed in them, I would start and just ask you to start on your knees. There's probably no argument that I could talk you into having a deep love for the Lord and for his people. There's nothing that I could say, some, some really clever argument to say, you know what, I finally have this heart for the Lord. It's going to start with us being on our knees saying, Lord, here am I. Here am I, Lord, here are the people that you've called me to. Would you just fill me up with a heart to love people the way that you've called me to love them? Would you fill me with compassion and empathy for the lost, for those around me, for my kids, for my grandkids, for the people the Lord puts on my pathway? If we don't start in prayer, I don't believe we're going to get there. If we don't start on our knees, the next three are going to be really non-starters. If we don't come to the Lord and say, Lord, here is my whole heart. Here is all of me. So, Lord, I just give it to you. I'm open. I'm available. I'm ready, Lord. Would you just fill my heart with your love, knowing that you are love? Would you fill my heart with your love for the lost? So as we pray for a deeper love, we also, secondly, participate in discipleship. We participate in the act of discipleship. I tell you, as I have struggled with a heart to love, one of the things that has been so helpful for me is participating in the act of discipling people. When I first went to college at Auburn, uh, Thomas West, who uh, grew up in our church and went on to uh, now plant a church in England, when I first got to Auburn, Thomas pulled me aside and said, Mark, you need to get plugged into this church discipling uh, students. 
you have a great gift, and so you just need to plug on in. So I'm going to go ahead and set you up. I'm going to give you I give the contact information, and I want you to come on with me to this night, and I want you to get plugged in. And so they, they came on, and they set me up with eighth-grade boys in discipleship. I'm a freshman guy at Auburn, uh, hanging out with eighth-grade boys. And can I tell you that these boys, they were terrible. <laughs> Horrible kids. Just Lord knows they needed Jesus. And so three weeks in, I thought, Lord, you're going to have to come back and save these kids. I'm done. I'm a freshman in college. I don't have time for this. I got other things to do. These kids are going to need um, a Damascus Rose type experience where you're going to have to come down. Maybe a donkey needs to speak. I don't know. But you're going to have to do something because I got nothing. And so three weeks, I decided after three weeks, I would just give up my time and I would, I would just go ahead and say, you know, I'll just I'll, I'll help these kids to the end of the semester and then I'll be done. But something happened as I uh, was encouraged to begin praying for these guys that my heart began to grow for them. What started was these kids are from the pit of hell to my heart expanding in love for them. So not that semester went by, it turned into the end of the year. And so from my freshman year of college to their eighth grade year, turned into their ninth grade year, turned into their 10th grade year, turned into their 11th grade year. Brittany and I got married and we stayed in Auburn. And so until they graduated, I stayed with this core group of kids. And friends, from the outset, where my heart was so hardened toward them and thought these kids are horrible and could never know the Lord to the end of just my love for them grew a thousand times to the point that week in and week out, which is, Lord, help something. I say, please let it stick. Please, if it's, just let them know that they are loved. Lord, would you just something get in them? Please, Lord, take this demon out of them and just let them know that they are loved, whatever it may be. And my heart just grew in deep compassion for these kids after a week, after a week, after a week, after a week, engaging in discipleship alongside them to where I desperately wanted them to know Jesus. But it started by being intentional in discipleship, week in and week out loving them. I can tell you, some of you have shared that this week. This past Wednesday night, as we just went around the room after a prayer meeting and just said, where have you seen the Lord at work? Uh, Bo Cooper just raised his hand and said, I am so excited because this week, my four-year-olds come back down into the big room and I can teach them about Jesus. And you can see the joy in his face as he said, I cannot wait to get those four-year-olds back and teach them the Bible memory verse and love on them and encourage them as they follow Jesus because they encourage me. And you could feel that in contagious enthusiasm week after week after week as he loved on those kids because Bo, Bo understands that the greatest gift that he can give is putting the gospel into the hearts of the next generation. But it works on different levels as well as we engage in practical discipleship. Brittany and I were in Birmingham, our church, um, a small group of young couples. And before we had kids, we just felt like we, we really need to get out of our, our little bubble and go and engage in some other people that would really help and help us with missions and just help us see different things. And so our eyes were drawn towards Clarkston, Georgia. And I was so thrilled that our junior high choir this year went to Clarkston, Georgia and ministered to the refugees in Clarkston. I'm ashamed to say as a, as a college student or, or out of college and, and uh, newly married that I didn't know much about refugees. I didn't know much about our policies in America. I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know really that our country even took in refugees. But I can't tell you, stepping foot onto Clarkston, Georgia helping with world relief in this apartment complex in which I played soccer with an Iranian refugee, an Iraqi refugee, and a Sudanese refugee. 
Our small group was partnered with a Sudanese family, six kids. The father would share with us how on his way to work every day, he was shot at almost daily, brutally beaten on multiple occasions. And somehow, by the grace of God, I stood in this man's living room with many of our kids playing together and many of us just sitting around this living room pouring our heart out for this man to know Jesus. I mean, we just encouraged him, talked to him, shared food together, and just told him about our faith as he told us about his. And it was in that moment, standing, sitting, kneeling, whatever it was, in his little room with his family all around him, that my heart began to just open for people that existed on other reaches of the planet that I had no clue about until that moment that I could look at a Sudanese refugee and know that we were in the same boat. I needed Jesus. He needed Jesus. And what a joy it was as my heart began to expand. We're eventually, week after week, going to the Clarkston uh, apartment complex, talking to this beautiful man, and just sharing our faith together, and just trying to share with him about what Jesus had done for us. My heart began week after week to pray for him. Lord, would you, would you open his eyes? Would you open his family's eyes? Would they see the goodness of Jesus? Would they see in us something different? Would they see the gospel? Lord, would you help him see you? Friends, when we engage in practical and participate in practical discipleship, when you teach Sunday school, when you engage in Bible fellowship classes, when you give yourself toward discipleship, your heart begins to expand in ways that you never thought possible. I encourage you, if you struggle with a heart for the lost, if you struggle with a heart that the gospel will be formed in people, would you actively participate in missions and evangelism and discipleship? And I believe you will see your heart grow in ways that you never thought possible as you pray that the Lord would open your heart. We also, therefore, would recognize the reality of eternity. We recognize that as we are on this pursuit, as Paul would pray, that he is again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Paul understood, as we need to understand, the reality of eternity. As we said just a moment ago, as we prayed Romans 6.23 and talked about and recited, for the wages of sin is death. Friend, if there was no conclusion to that verse, we would be in grave trouble. For many today, they do not know Jesus, and so there is no conclusion to this verse. They have not accepted the free gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus. There is a reality of heaven. There is a reality of hell, which would lead us to an urgency, and Paul's urgency to saying, I'm in the pains of childbirth for Christ to be formed in you, because Paul recognized the reality that people are dying separated from the love of Jesus. And so for us, we can't take an apathetic or uncaring stance. That's why we desire for Christ to be formed into our kids and our grandkids, why there is nothing on the same level or weight as the gospel. There's a lot of earthly things that live on this plane, but there is the eternal weight of the gospel, friends, which would lead us lastly to this, that we are called to stir one another up. Hebrews 10, 23 through 25 tells us, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day draw near. I want to focus for a moment on verse 24. And let us consider how to stir one another up. Our day and time again, as I shared at prayer meeting just a few weeks ago, that we can stir one another up to so many different things. 
I mean, we're good stirring the pot. We can stir everybody up. We can get everybody upset. We can get everybody anxious and frustrated. We can stir the pot so quickly. Our culture is great at stirring the pot. Just getting everybody angry. We live in the culture of outrage. We want to stir the pot. But our calling as believers is to stir one another up to love and to good works. Verse 25 concludes it, not neglecting to meet together, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. As I know that every pastor, theologian that has lived since the days of Jesus has believed that the day is super near. Every theologian and pastor has pretty much thought that Jesus was going to come back in their lifetime. And again, it feels like, almost like again, that the Lord's coming back soon. He, he got to. I mean, we just read everything. We see everything. We just feel like, man, the Lord's got to come back soon. It feels the weight of the day drawing near. But he hasn't yet. And so as we see the day drawing near, Hebrews would tell us, encourage one another. Stir one another up to love and good works. Recognize the reality of heaven and hell and let's have a gospel urgency that would lead us to love and care for people the way that Jesus has called us to love and care for people. There is too much at stake. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you. Lord, thank you that we have good news to share, that you have saved us from the pit of hell. Thank you, Lord, that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. That this free gift is not one that we have to do something to earn, but that you have earned it for us. So all we have to do is call upon your name, and we will be saved. So Lord, thank you. Thank you for your free gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus. Lord, thank you for Paul's heartfelt earnest desire for the Galatian church to have you formed in their hearts. Lord, I pray for us as believers, for moms, dads, grandparents, for missionaries, for business, whatever it may look like for us to to desire the gospel to go forth in the hearts of peoples that we come in contact with. Lord, we need your help. We need your guidance. We need your leadership. We cannot do this on our own, nor do we want to. Lord, we love you, and we thank you for your son, Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.